0: Team a 281 Georgia Department of Human Services,
1: Division of Family and Children's Services versus Christopher Steiner, Sarah Warren for appellant, Scott Key for Appelli.
2: You are.
1: <coughs> Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I am Sarah Hawkins Warren, Solicitor General for the State of Georgia, arguing on behalf of Appellant Department of Human Services. I intend to reserve four minutes for rebuttal, and I will monitor my time. In 2016, Georgia established a child abuse registry to further the state's vital interest in protecting children. The Superior Court in this case erred when it determined that the Child Abuse Registry was unconstitutional on its face and as applied to Mr. Steiner. Those errors were rooted in a flawed due process analysis that failed to meaningfully apply long standing U.S. Supreme Court precedent, such as the Stigma Plus test in Paul versus Davis and the, uh, the Matthews versus Eldridge procedural due process inquiry. The Department asked this Court to overturn the Superior Court's ruling and to faithfully apply Paul, just as it did in 2016 in the case of Gregory v. Sexual Offender Registry Review Board. The Superior Court in this case made a number of reversible errors, but foremost among them was that it erred by finding that the registry was unconstitutional without first identifying a liberty interest that would have qualified under the Paul v. Davis uh, test and would thus trigger procedural due process protections under Paul. Now, Mr. Steiner conceived at page six of his brief, the Paul Stigma Plus test applies here. And Paul applies in registry cases where a plaintiff alleges reputational harm because the state has placed that person on a registry similar to this one. In the case of Paul, the U.S. Supreme Court held that reputation alone was insufficient to establish the liberty interest that was required to trigger due process protections under the Constitution. Paul requires a plus an alteration or an extinguishment of previously existing state law right or status to establish that liberty interest and to thus trigger due process.
0: Under that, under that argument, would we have <coughs> a different view of this case entirely if, say, Mr. Steiner was a worker at a daycare center?
1: Uh, certainly, Your Honor, that would change the calculus. And I think if you look at the, the cases that are out there on registries, there are multiple cases from other state Supreme Courts and federal courts of appeals. There is certainly a trend that cases that tend to be more successful are cases from the child care profession. But those are based not on a liberty interest of saying in a speculative manner, this might hurt my job prospects in the future, or uh, showing no record and just saying, I think it will be harder to find a job in the future. The cases that are more successful, such as the Dupuy case in the Seventh Circuit, the Monte case in the second circuit include people who say they are barred altogether from a profession and that that would establish a Liberty interest because they could not continue the profession of their choice. And in some of those cases, due process procedures have been triggered because there was a Liberty interest. But, That's not but the
3: statutory process for challenging being placed on the registry. You have a 10 day window to challenge. And if you miss that 10 day window, you can't ever come back and challenge it later. So If you ever want to be a childcare worker, you've got 10 days to, to do something about it.
1: That, that's correct, Your Honor, and, and that is something that would be considered in a Matthews balancing if a liberty interest were triggered. Um, that is not something that Mr. Steiner has cl- complained about here, and in fact, I think the expeditious nature of the, the registry scheme, the statute and the regulations promulgated, it goes towards uh, some of the, the safeguards against erroneous deprivation, because although there is a short 10-day window, that also means that people who use that process and apply for administrative proceedings have a way to quickly vindicate themselves to get in front of the ALJ. That
4: goes and- to the. Whether the process provided is once you get a liberty interest, whether the process provided would be okay, but that's right. But on the original question, do we look at the liberty, the uh, stigma plus test, solely based on the individual uh, at issue, or do we look at how the scheme functions, and whether there's a broad set of people that it applies to?
1: I think you have to look at the, the, the person who is bringing the challenge first, and I think looking at the broader groups of people would go to an as-applied challenge or even to a facial challenge down the line. Uh, this court in the Gregory case from 2016 did just that. It looked at the Paul stigma plus test in the context of the sex offender registry, which is uh, a public-facing registry, unlike this registry, which has many confidentiality provisions associated with it, and in that case, the first step it took is it said this person has been classified as sexually dangerous predator. Does that trigger a liberty interest? And then this court went through an analysis by saying, well, there's a <laughs> reputational interest here. Reputation <clears throat> isn't enough. Well, then this person has to have an ankle monitor on. They have to pay for that device. They have to check in with the sheriff. Taken together all the factors this court considered, uh, weighed in favor of saying, yes, there was a liberty interest. And then a Matthews balancing ensued after that.
4: But we found a liberty interest. You did. Here and- you said there isn't a liberty interest. Uh, had he simply said, you know, I'm whatever years old, someday I might actually be interested in a job in one of these industries or I actually might want to adopt or foster a child, would that be enough?
1: It would not be enough, Your Honor, and I think the case law bears that out. If you look at the 11th Circuit case of Barons, which addressed the Florida registry, there you had parents who had actually been licensed in Florida to adopt children. They were then put on a registry. They were cleared criminally. They were cleared out of dependency hearings. They then were unable to adopt because they were still on the registry in Florida. The court there found no liberty interest because there was no state law right to adopt in Florida. So there, there was no alteration of state law status um, under Paul. It did not meet the liberty interest prong. Similarly, with There are a number of cases, really a couple of cases, Dupuy in the Seventh Circuit, Jameson from the Missouri Supreme Court, that did overturn state registry statutes. Those were based on childcare workers who offered a record, unlike here, that those people were already in the profession of childcare, and they said, we can't continue on because the statute itself places a burden on our ability to continue on in our profession. Both of those courts noted specifically that you couldn't just say, I want to be in childcare someday, I want to, to operate a, a childcare center someday, they had to either be in the profession, be in the process of applying for the profession, or be in academic, academic programs that would naturally lead to the
4: profession. So just to go back to Justice Peterson's, but there's 10 days or you lose it forever. So if you're a 20 year old and you're put on, you're put on the registry, unless you actually have a family or one in the pipeline, you're just out of luck because you can, you can only speculatively say yes. I hope to get married and have cho- and adopt children if I can't conceive them naturally. Um, I really hope to do that someday, but I'm only 20 years old and I don't actually have somebody I'm dating, and and you're out of luck forever.
1: I think the legislature has made a decision of how the the child abuse registry operates. Well, that, and that there goes
4: to the the procedures, but but you're saying that that person. Is just out of luck because, as of that day, they can't lay out with concreteness how it's going to hurt them in the future. Well,
1: I think there are two things. You know, first, if you are, if you take advantage of the procedures that are given, then of course you can seek to vindicate if you think that you are not correctly listed. But if you miss but, the 10-day by window, your,
4: by your reasoning, the state can. Uh, if we hold that there's no liberty interest in that setting, the state could repeal the procedures for someone in that situation.
1: I'm sorry. Right. Could you say that again?
4: If we hold that that person does not have a liberty interest, the state can repeal all the procedures as to people situated like that, right? Because I there is no—I mean, there's no requirement of providing any process if there's not a liberty interest.
1: Well, I think that certainly people could. Uh, I think it's a case-by-case basis, and it base is based on the kind of evidence that you bring forward and the kind of liberty interest that you're seeking to vindicate. And as you've seen, as we So all If I'm
3: twenty. And I think maybe in five or 10 years, I might like to adopt a child. What sort of evidence would suffice for me to bring forward within the 10 days that I have to appeal?
1: I think you would have to first ask under Paul whether being able to adopt was a state law right in Georgia. I don't think our state law allows for that to happen. What what What
3: if I may want to work in that space and historically, you know, the right to work in the profession of your choosing has generally been recognized as having some constitutional basis. What about that?
1: That's right. And I think that is that, that kind of claim is the type of claim that would come much closer to or may even meet a liberty interest in some circumstances.
3: So, what, what sort of record would I have to, to make in order to, to satisfy?
1: So, the Seventh Circuit in the Missouri Supreme Court said you would have to show that you were in the process of applying, because there were plaintiffs in those cases that were actually in the process of I'm applying. I'm in
3: college. I won't be in a position to start the process of applying for a couple of years.
1: If you were in a teaching program and the teaching program had a practicum component and you had to go into a classroom and by I'm virtue majoring of- majoring in political science. Then you might not be able to establish a liberty interest. <laughs> Would you- is, is the answer that you could
0: have an as-applied challenge down the road when you developed a, su- a sufficient record, perhaps an as-applied
1: challenge to the 10-day limitation? I'm not sure how the as-applied challenge will work on the 10-day limitation because the 10 days, once the 10 days pass, you can't go back. But that would
5: be part of your constitutional challenge, whether that's uh, sufficient due process, right?
1: It could be it is not part of the challenge here, and of the cases that i've seen, and we've read dozens of these cases across the states and in federal courts, that initial period of time is not something that has traditionally been part of the concern in a due process challenge and in fact, many courts have have penalized um, states and said due process was insufficient when it took too long to get a hearing because then the person well, we're
5: who not is i 'm I'm not talking about how fast a hearing is, but if your answer is you can't Bring a. You can't challenge until you have sufficient property interest. You don't have property interest until you're applying, but you can't you can't challenge it until 10 days. Then, if you have a property interest when it comes time to apply, part of your challenge will have to be that 10-day limitation you can't constitutionally bar me from trying to protect my interest.
1: Well, I, th- I think you. It seems like we're getting the the inquiry backwards because. Uh, it- There's not a right to have a liberty interest, and so the first question, in Paul, is beyond this reputational interest, which most courts that have examined it have found there is a reputational concern, what other state law right or status is altered? And so taking it in that order is essential uh, to to be able to establish what that liberty interest is, and it is hard to establish a liberty interest, and that's because state law statuses uh, aren't necessarily confirmed on people, and they can't be speculative. They can't be speculative employment, speculative family interests, but certainly they have been established in some other states and in some other federal courts, that is not the case here. Where Mr. So,
3: so, and that's fine as a matter of federal due process law, but there's also a state due process claim here. And a component of the state due process clause is a right to privacy. Why doesn't this implicate um, the right to privacy of Mr.—of uh, of our uh, appellant or appellee here?
1: Uh, I think that we would have to have a, I think Mr. Steiner would have to come forward with some kind of claim. This is not a 12b6 motion. This is a claim on the merits to explain how the state had actually deprived him of something and changed his status or his state rights He's uh, by He's being named
3: a child abuser on a list and he would prefer not to be known as a child abuser. And it's all very well and good to say, well, we don't let people gain access to this, but theoretically people aren't supposed to have my social security number when I register to vote either. and, and you know, that's been publicized. So
1: I I take to heart your point, Justice Peterson. And I think that that is certainly a claim he could have made with specificity here. I don't think it's a claim he's brought. And I have not seen other state registries evaluated, uh, giving credence to privacy, even under a state constitution as a liberty interest that could suffice under Paul. It's certainly something that could hypothetically happen. Uh, But but I think also that's
3: not a that's not a claim under Paul. It's a separate standalone freestanding state constitutional claim.
1: Well, but I think that a way to view it would also be to say, for example, there's a a Pennsylvania case where the Pennsylvania Constitution conferred a right to reputation. And so there, they were able to satisfy Paul because that, even the reputation alone typically doesn't suffice, it would have altered his state law right to reputation (coughs) under Pennsylvania law. So you can view it in that way and say, well, how does that establish your state law right here and fit it into the Paul paradigm? And I would encourage the court to think in that way. I think it's also important to note here um, that the court doesn't But that's
3: only the right way to think about it about it if it's being framed as solely a federal due process claim. If it's also a separate standalone state constitutional claim, there's no reason to fit it through a federal due process rubric.
1: I'm not sure you would have to. I think this court has before done so, and I would encourage the court to look through that lens here. But this does raise an important point, too, which is that this court does not have to decide in this case, uh, or in many cases, whether a liberty interest actually existed, because the court could presume for the sake of argument that a liberty interest did exist, and then go on to the procedural due process inquiry under Matthews to establish and to decide whether the procedural protections under the state registry now are sufficient.
3: So how about the notice he got?
1: I think it's constitutionally sufficient.
5: Even though it's utter gibberish? (laughs) I
1: I would resist the characterization that it's utter gibberish. I think if you look at the notice in its entirety, and I would encourage the court to look at this starting at page 75 of the record, it is clear as day what the notice says. It says, you have been designated— That's
3: just flatly untrue. I mean, (laughs) it it, it is not—it's not obviously English.
1: Justice Peterson, I think if you look at the entirety of the notice, the first three or four pages say you've been designated on the child abuse registry. You've been found to uh, commit an instance of child abuse by a preponderance of the evidence. It gives a date. It gives the category of sexual abuse. And then the only, the, the last paragraph, which I'm <laughs> presuming is the paragraph you're talking about, uh, probably could have been written better. But the question under a due process analysis for constitutional sufficiency is not whether it's perfect. It's not whether it's ideal. It's whether it gives reasonable notice under the circumstances that gives somebody the opportunity to challenge. And, and an opportunity so what if to be- that
3: paragraph instead said, the person did a bad thing?
1: I think it would be a harder case to make. But I think here where it alleges specific acts and it uses specific terms, it uses the initials of a minor, which is the proper uh, course of conduct for a minor, a minor who is known to Mr. Steiner. So he's not saying, I didn't know who that person was. It gives an approximate date for the range of the time this conduct happened and says, you have 10 days to contest. You have a right to a hearing. You can present evidence. You can cross-examine and you can have a lawyer. That gives him the notice that he needs to show up and to contest this. And if he has questions about the, the way that that paragraph is written, he can ask those questions when he cross-examines as the victim or any of the other witnesses who come forward.
5: What if, what if you take some of the nouns in the notice and replace them with Klingon? Is that <laughs> adequate notice?
1: Uh, it, it may not be, but I think we would have to look at the totality of that notice to say under all of the circumstances, is that reasonable, um, and given given what that actual notice said.
5: I mean, is it really too much to ask the bureaucracy to use actual English words in the notice they give people?
1: Well, certainly I think we would all prefer if all notices in all circumstances were clear as day. I don't think that's the reality of the situation, and this court has recognized that, and I think it's the SAFO case where it made clear that in administrative hearings, it's, it's the reasonableness under all the circumstances, and there are federal cases in U.S. Supreme court cases that say the same thing. I think that's in, in what other here.
3: context have we said, you don't, when, when notice in a hearing is required, assuming that it's required, you don't really have to be put on notice of what the actual charges are because you have the opportunity to cross-examine at the hearing. I mean, that's not notice in a hearing, it's just a hearing where you get to find out what your actual charges are through cross-examination.
1: I don't think that's what happened here, and I'm confident that my friend on the other side but, will, t- will tell the you differently. the position you
3: just took was that cross-examination can cure whatever defects are in the notice.
1: I don't think that's necessarily true uh, in, in absolute terms, but I think it's true that even in this court's case of Gregory, there was a recognition that where a hearing is due, that wh- wherever it comes in the process, it can cure some of those questions. Uh, and also, Mr. Steiner would have to show prejudice. So the al Haramein case we cited from the Ninth Circuit, and there are a few others we cited I think that the Brentwood uh, Schools case say that if your allegation is that the, the notice was insufficient, you need to be able to show that doing it differently would have led to a different result. Can, there is no can, allegation.
5: Can I ask you before you sit down, that you're trying to save time, how should we read State versus Jackson?
1: I think that um, the state can prevail without you overruling Jackson. We think there are very good reasons that it should be overruled. I think there are also some ways to distinguish that case. The first would be that the liberty interest that was identified there, the status of exonerated criminal defendant, uh, is not a liberty interest that is here. And so Mr. Steiner would have to establish a different and separate liberty interest in that case. That liberty interest is, by the way, a very novel one that we've not seen in other other cases. Uh, The second is that the primary concern about criminal procedures in, in the Jackson case stemmed from a lack of confrontation. That concern is not present here because the new registry allows confrontation in the hearings, and so to the extent that there were concerns about uh, criminal procedures being imposed on people, that would be eliminated, and so there would be no concern about criminal procedures wholesale being in that case. Um, I would point out before I sit down, and I'll save the rest of my time for rebuttal, that there's no liberty interest that Mr. Steiner has alleged or proved or even offered evidence of to prove his burden that his facial challenge below should have succeeded. I'm sure I'll address that on rebuttal, but I'll save the rest of my time
6: thank you Ms. Warren key mr. chief justice and may it please the court I'll first discuss the Liberty interest and why it exists and then I'll move to the registry's unconstitutionality but before I do that I want to point out the salient moments that brought us to this point mr. Steiner received this notice in the mail this notice told him that he'd already been found to be a registered child abuser can you put the whole notice on
0: Ella. Well, I'm putting that this is this is out of the order that you suggested, but as long as you've introduced the notice Let's say that we conclude that that notice was not sufficient as to mr. Steiner that doesn't mean that the statute is unconstitutional does it?
6: It does mean that it's unconstitutional because this is all that's necessary as as you heard from the appellant To be
0: facially unconstitutional one person has to receive an adequate notice.
6: But the, the the appellant's position is that the the kind of notice that you see in this language, and this is the utter gibberish that was discussed a moment ago, this is sufficient. If this is sufficient for Mr. Steiner to be proper notice. No, no I said, I said
0: if it's insufficient.
6: It is insufficient, yes.
0: Right. Let's say that we conclude that for Mr. Steiner, that notice was insufficient. Are you arguing that that means that the statute is facially unconstitutional?
6: Uh, Justice Grant, I wouldn't necessarily be making that argument, however. As I read the statute itself, um, this was even more than they were required to provide. Um, the, The appellant is correct in saying all that the statute requires for proper notice is that the alleged victim be identified, that the alleged perpetrator be identified. that their their dates of birth be identified, and that it simply classify the type of abuse that it is. But the statute
3: doesn't prohibit the department from giving more information in the notice, right? It doesn't, but— So so a a more complete notice could be given, and if a more complete notice could be given, then that constitutional deficiency is simply an as-applied challenge to the notice rather than a challenge to the statute,
6: right? In in an instance when a complete uh, notice Mm -hmm. is given, yes, but you do have to deal with the fact that the statute doesn't require anything more. And the statute in and of itself and not requiring more is facially unconstitutional. It's not a burden I have to shoulder. If it's, if it's an unconstitutional as applied to me, then I'm satisfied. But I would also argue that it's facially unconstitutional. Well,
4: what, what more do you get in a criminal indictment that can get you locked up for life? You get the name of the victim, the name of the perpetrator, maybe a date, the um, and then the
6: offense. You you are tell you are entitled to an indictment perfect in form under Georgia criminal
4: that's, law. That's an indictment perfect in form. On this date, you did with malice aforethought uh, kill this person. Period.
6: That is more
4: than the statute requires in this instance, and that's more than what was required what, what, here. What more? I mean, you have to give the name of the person, the name of the victim. Assume you have to give a date, and then. Uh,
6: and then the type of this of this, statute, this statute this statute requires a classification of abuse is it okay. neglect is it physical abuse is it sexual abuse without saying more if, if a person were indicted for having mm-hmm. done something to a minor who had a particular date of birth and it fit into the category of physical abuse that would not be a sufficient indictment under Georgia law.
2: Let me that, ask you this one. I understand what you're saying as applied to you but how about <coughs> facially.
6: Well, well fa- facially there's the, still the problem that there's only the need to provide notice of the name of the victim, the name of the defendant, and the type a classification, but certainly as applied, this is a woefully insufficient notice that Mr. Steiner received. When he shows up for his hearing with this insufficient notice, when we argue that we don't have sufficient <clears throat> notice, uh, we're told that we can find out what the case is as we cross-examine witnesses. Cross-examination and confrontation is an advocacy tool. It is not a discovery tool. You do not discover what your charges are, what they say you did as a hearing unfolds.
4: Again, in, in the criminal <clears throat> system, as a matter of due process, you don't have any right, you have a right to be told you are on trial for this offense against this victim. You have no right to discovery of any kind except of exculpatory material and witness statements which you say and the trial court said you have a right to know what the witnesses are going to say beforehand. I mean under federal law the Jenks Act says you can turn those over right before cross examination. Um, and that's just a matter of, of statute. But the so, problem
6: is we received nothing. We, we didn't know the name of a single witness. Um, and, and under Georgia no law. No right under the criminal
4: due process. In a criminal case, a state could take away witnessless, right? yes. So so where is that a requirement of, of the Matthews v. Eldridge civil balancing test well, it's a, that it's, it is a mandate that
6: you have the names of the witnesses? It's a combination of a lack of right to an adequate notice combined with the lack of, of and the right to any kind of discovery whatsoever. So Mr. Steiner receives this gibberish notice, shows up for his hearing, has no discovery, doesn't know the name of a single witness who will be testifying against him, and in response to a challenge that he doesn't have sufficient notice is told. He can just find out what the case is as the hearing unfolds. I'm more
4: concerned about your facial challenge, which you say it's facially, and the trial court said it's facially unconstitutional because you don't get discovery, you don't get witness, the names of witnesses. But as a matter of federal due process in criminal cases where due process is at its height, you don't have a due process right to discovery of incriminating information or of witnesses.
6: You certainly don't, but the fact that you don't have discovery exacerbates the problem with the lack of due process and the lack of adequate notice. Okay. So if you have no discovery and you have no no really right to understand what you're even being charged with, you really do go, go into this closed courtroom completely blind. Now to get back, then once he once he got to the end of it to the hearing, he was told he'd be placed on this registry for life. I want to first talk about the liberty interest, and I want to, I want to reference... Let me
2: just the, ask you one question, but as far as just the, the wording of the notice, is this how they typically send out a notice? Do
6: you know? Um, I've never been privy to any others of these. I know that this is the one I received. I know that um, the statute...
2: Well, who prepares them? We don't
6: know. Well, it, so what happens in, in cases like these is you receive something in the mail telling you that a DFACS investigator, and we don't know who that is or what the qualifications <laughs> for an investigator are or what the process is within DFACS. They have found, a, a DFACS employee has found by a preponderance of the evidence, which is distinctly judicial, that you are a child abuser. They send you the notice. You have 10 days to respond. In terms of the liberty interest, Justice Hines, the best authority for Mr. Steiner's position is State versus Jackson, which you wrote in 1998. And in Jackson, this court found with you writing that a liberty interest, and this is in footnote five of Jackson, a liberty interest equals a clear potential impact for impairment of employment opportunity, just the, just the clear potential impact. Now, uh, Justice Hines, that, in that case, there were only three categories of people who would have access to the registry. It was either medical examiners, coroners, or abuse investigators. And in footnote five, this court found that despite requirements of confidentiality, there is the clear potential for impairment of employment opportunities for those who are or would attempt to be employed by abuse investigators and others with registry access. The, in, in spite of the fact that, that Jackson was clear precedent and, and is our position that this court would have to overturn Jackson in order to reach the, in order to reach the result that the appellant would like the court to reach. How, how would you reconcile Jackson were, um, with Paul versus Davis out of the United States Supreme Court? Um, well, under the under the Paul test, we have definitely have a stigma. We we have the stigma that he's been called not only a child abuser but a sexual abuser, and secondly, um, and and there has to be an impairment of of a right. In Jackson, uh, this court defines liberty interest as something that's based upon a stake in a one's reputation, coupled with an alteration of that of that status. But that's
5: yeah. Uh, well, I'm trying to figure out Paul versus Paul versus Davis is more of a stigma plus test. What you just described is stigma plus reputation, which is stigma, stigma.
6: Well, Your Honor, th- we, we satisfy the state constitutional law in terms of what—we we satisfy both tests. In terms of the plus— What's the plus? The plus in this case is the fact that this gentleman um, is—he's—and I think it goes to your point uh, a moment ago— I wouldn't read too much into questions at oral argument. Well, <laughs> Well, I will try my best not to. Um, The, the, it it, it does go to the point that you raised, which is that you are as good as who you are when they get you. When they get you, if you're unemployed, then I suppose you never can be employed. If they get you um, at a time that you don't have children, I suppose that you have now been told by the state of Georgia that you can never have children. Or is the answer to that, what Justice Grant suggested?
0: That, that there's a different that there's a different test but I, I actually wonder because we will there will someday be a person who has a liberty interest there will be a child care worker who is put on this list or something like that what what if we presume that there's a liberty interest then why aren't the procedures in place sufficient to vindicate that liberty interest
6: well if you presume that there is a liberty interest there are several there are several problems when you reach the Matthews versus Eldridge test uh, number one um, so the first, the the first test is the private interest that will be affected by the official action. Um, again, the private interest when you get to the first prong of Eldridge are, and, and I would I would also respectfully suggest that this is not just a limitation from child care work. Um, any any agency with registry access has the ability to use the registry for employment purposes. The there's there's no. There's no language in, in Section 185 that, that that talks about, you know, it talks about a, a licensed a licensed entity that either takes care of or has access to or has interact with children. Th-
0: that, that's all fine, but the the state I, I hope we can all agree has an interest in for people who are proven by whatever the appropriate standard of proof is for keeping those people from engaging with. Children. So let's say the state wants to vindicate that interest. Why is that liberty, why is someone's liberty interest in getting their name off that list if they have not reached that appropriate standard of proof, not vindicated here?
6: Um, just, uh, Justice Grant, if you look to the second part of the Matthews v. Eldridge test, which is the risk of erroneous deprivation of such interest through the procedures used and the, and the probable value, if any, of additional or substitute procedural safeguards. Therein lies the problem. That, that may be, it may be noble to identify who the child abusers are, but there there's a requirement that it be done so in a way that it avoids error. And, and this. That
4: avoids all error. I mean, even in the criminal justice system, there's error. And that, it's, the fact that there's error doesn't mean there, it's not sufficient due process.
6: But in the, in the in, criminal in justice system. One of the
4: concerns I have is the trial court, and, and your argument is, Um, You need the full panoply of rights of the criminal justice system, and it seems like more, like discovery and witness name.
6: Well, the full panoply of of rights is not necessary for us to prevail. But under the So so the, so the, the trial court whose order you drafted that said that got it wrong? they didn't get it wrong we we certainly believe in what the trial court said but you don't have to reach that point to find that this statute is unconstitutional there's a risk of erroneous deprivation simply from the fact that you find out that you've already your hearing already took place within a defects office by an investigator whose qualifications you do not know whose procedure used you do not know and that person has made a judicial finding by preponderance of the evidence then you've already you've already been determined to be a child abuser and there's been no hearing you then have a 10-day period of time which hopefully you weren't on vacation during that 10-day period of time in which to answer but that's not not
3: really all that different from all sorts of other state administrative hearing processes we have i mean you know the department of natural resources may investigate um suspected polluters and the hearing officer will be somebody who works for dnr and they will they'll issue a conclusion now you can eventually take that to spirit court, but the the fact that the finders of fact or the ultimate determiners are folks who work for the agency, we typically
6: have not held to be a due process. Violation. Not just that they work for the industry. <laughs> is that they're making a preponderance finding in a, in a statute that doesn't even define what preponderance means.
0: What? Well, I I Come mean, on. preponderance has a definition I think that is pretty well
6: accepted. Uh, it has a definition. It doesn't have an internal statutory definition within this statute. What? And does it
4: have it for the, for civil cases? Is there a definition of preponderance for civil cases of which there are 10
6: million? Yes, there is. The problem is, is we don't know what the protocols are for the investigators. We don't know what the quality is. But we don't assume that they're bad, right? I mean, you haven't made a showing that they're bad. Well, we, we, can, we can certainly look at the notice before the court and, and see the evidence of their This is their report. This is their report. Well, um, and that's a fair point with respect to the
3: notice your client received was constitutionally insufficient, but that doesn't go to the rest of the procedure here, Well, when you, facially.
6: as you work down the procedure, you don't have notice of what you did as the hearing unfolds you don't necessarily have a right to have notice of what you were found guilty of doing why can't, um, and it happens why can't in
4: a, you call you're allowed to call whatever witnesses you want right well you're allowed and to ask them ca- whatever questions
6: presumably within some idea of the rules of evidence you're allowed to call whatever witnesses you have notice of but for instance in this case there was a um there was a forensic interview that we didn't find out about until the middle of the hearing
4: okay and at that point as happens in criminal cases, especially in the old days before we had discovery, you find out things and then you deal with it. You either ask for continuance or you or you issue a subpoena for that witness.
6: Well, if I don't know if we would yeah. have gotten it. I don't know what this person would have said. Uh, but we didn't have any notice of any of their witnesses. So, in, 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 in addition, as soon
0: as you challenge, as soon as you challenge, you or the client challenges their inclusion, that their inclusion is stayed. Does that mean that they're off the list until? the appellate procedures are concluded
6: for the period of time that elapses between, uh, when you, you are on the, you are on the registry until the outcome of the ALJ hearing at the end of the ALJ hearing. If you prevail on the, um, on the, the judicial review before the superior court, we're, we're off because there was a finding that there was an order ordering us off. But in the interim during that 10 day period of time between when you are substantiated and when you file your appeal at the least, you're on that registry
0: for for 10 for uh, for 10 days you're on but then if you challenge on day 10 at that point on day 10 are you on day 11 are you on or off the registry? my
6: understanding that your challenge does not take you off the registry you're only off the registry if you prevail at some point i could be wrong but that is my understanding of the law but beyond beyond all of that there's the fact that this takes place in a closed courtroom so the alj <laughs> hearing and the judicial review hearing are both closed. It, the the procedures operate in a complete star chamber environment where the where the public is not allowed in to see what's going on. Then once you, you are
0: would you have an objection? Part of your interest here is reputational. Would you complain if if a notice were sent to the media and everyone were invited to the hearing?
6: I'm sorry, would I complain?
0: Would you complain about a greater reputational interest if these proceedings were open rather than closed?
6: I would not, Your Honor, because people uh, there, there, there are there is some value to there's a great deal of value into being tried in an open proceeding. Uh, if you clear your name, the way you cleared your name is is open in that open proceeding, and judges are more accountable to the public if what they do happens in an open proceeding
0: the superior court proceeding is open correct
6: the superior court proceeding is my as i understand it is closed judge fears ordered our our courtroom to be closed
0: was that the judge's order or is that inherent in the statute
6: i i see no provision that opens the the superior did you object to that um i object i did not object to it no Your, I take that back. I filed a constitutional challenge that challenged the the closed nature of the proceeding, and I had a ruling against me. Your brief references the Georgia Constitution's due process
3: clause. The Superior Court order, so far as I read it, addresses only the United States Constitution. Do you you understand yourself to have preserved a Georgia Constitution due process challenge? I do,
6: based upon the way that I drafted the pretrial challenge. Uh, so there is a there is a challenge under the Georgia Constitution that's ripe for adjudication. And is here. there
3: a you know under Pavisich, is there a privacy claim within the context of the due
6: process? We would argue that there certainly is. Uh, there, there's a right to family privacy and autonomy. Uh,
2: there, I argue, there, Mr. Key, that there's a. A constitutional violation under both the Georgia and the U.S. Constitution? Yes, Your Honor.
4: Well, you, you raised both challenges, but then when you wrote the trial court's order, he only ruled on the federal challenge, and since he ruled in your favor, unlike the cases that say denying your claims would have denied both, since he ruled in your favor on the federal challenge, why do we assume that he ruled in your favor on the state challenge, too, when it doesn't say a word about it?
6: The ALJ ruled on it in its entirety and overruled my entire um my entire constitutional challenge and then
4: the superior court said you win on the federal due process doesn't say a word about state why is that a distinct ruling
6: well at worst there would be a requirement for a remand based upon the fact that we've raised at worst that's a remand situation justice Namias. does the court have any more questions of me thank you Mr. thank you thank you Ms. Warren. you have some of the bubble
1: All right. I'll try to fit this in. Just a couple of points, Your Honor. Uh, The first is that these proceedings are administrative under the APA. They're not criminal. And there's no allegation here that the administrative proceedings under the APA were conducted improperly. And for example, I think if you look at the record here, there will be evidence that witness lists were exchanged before the proceeding. That's just one example. The second point here is that the Georgia registry that is at issue here, unlike a couple of the state registries that have been overturned in other places, does not require by the terms of the statute or the implementing regulations themselves any direct burden uh, on someone who may have a potential liberty interest. And what I mean by that is this if you are in child care, certainly the Georgia Registry allows certain limited agencies for certain limited purposes viewing the information on the registry, but it does not require it by the terms of the statute. That's a difference from the Valmonte case in the Second Circuit, that's a difference from the Jameson case in the Missouri Supreme Court, and also in the Dupuy case <coughs> in the Seventh Circuit. I think that's a very important distinction here, not only as it pertains to child care or adoption, but certainly as to private employment that's not even contemplated in the statutory scheme. And then the third point is that when looking at the Jackson cases, Justice Melton asked about I think an organizing principle but the principle that is very helpful in examining what that case said and what it did is that that was a case that outlined a substantive due process analysis for what really was a procedural due process case. And so the state would ask this court to adhere more to the Gregory paradigm of examining Paul versus Davis than the Jackson.
2: Let me ask you this, uh, Ms. Warren, just on the Wording of the quote, notice, uh, do you think that's very good notice, (laughs) if you think you are substantiated on as a result of uh,
1: your Honor, I think all of us would agree that if we, in, you know, in hindsight, could go back and make the notice clear, that's something that, that we would all prefer. And, and I'm sure that our client will take that to heart. That doesn't mean it's constitutionally insufficient. And I think a reasonable person looking at not only this statement, but the totality of the notice itself, what it said, the rights that it outlined, and the things that it clearly said, and even the, the names and dates and references in this uh, somewhat poorly worded notice, together mean that it is constitutionally sufficient under due process. Well, does, we a person,
0: to- does a person need to be, needs be found unsubstantiated, if that's the right way to put it, in order for their inclusion on the list to be stayed. At what point can you be stayed on the list?
1: My my understanding and if I can finish the remainder of your question, Mr. Chief Justice, um, when you are substantiated, I think you're on the list. When you go to the ALJ, it's my understanding that you are still on the list. If you appeal the ALJ's finding, the statute says that for the pendency of the petition for judicial review, your listing is stayed. And that lasts throughout the the Superior Court proceedings because they act as the intermediate appellate Court. It is not clear to me what happens then afterwards. In this case, of course, Mr. Steiner is not on the registry because he had a finding of lack of substantiation. Uh, what else? Sorry. Think, thank, thank you, it. Mr. Chief Justice.
2: Thank you, uh, Ms. Warren. Thank you, Mr. Key. Ladies and gentlemen, please safe going back to your offices. Thank you. Is everybody okay?